Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. In introductory geometry classes, many of the objects dealt with can be considered elementary in nature. Things like tetrahedrons, spheres, cylinders, planes, lines, and other such concepts are common in these classes and are part of classical geometry. However, we often have the need to describe more complex objects. These objects can be quite organic or even abstract in shape and include things like spirals, flowery shapes, and other curved surfaces. These are often described better by differential geometry as opposed to the more elementary classical geometry. One helpful metric in describing these objects is how they are curved around a certain point. So how is curvature defined mathematically? What is the difference between a negative and a positive curvature? And what can Gauss's Theorema Egregium teach us about eating pizza? All of this and more on this episode of Breaking Math. Episode 58, Bringing Curvy Back. I'm Sophia. And I'm Meryl. And you're listening to Breaking Math. Meryl's been on quite a bit uh, recently. Uh, she was on, um, what episodes were you on recently? Um, I was on the one about spheres and the one about bases. Yeah, and um, Meryl is actually going to be part uh, more of Breaking Math uh, now, and uh, she's going to be a uh, co-host as well. So um, this is sort of a welcome of Meryl to that part of the show. Before we continue, let's do some plugs. First, I'm going to tell you about our poster store. If you go to facebook.com slash breaking math podcast and click on shop, you can buy a tensor poster, which is $19.65, and that includes shipping and handling. It's a poster that kind of defines uh, what tensors are, uh, walks you through some of the math, uh, the metric tensor, things like that. If you want to support the show monthly, uh, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash breaking math. Um, One dollar or more will get you uh, outlines that we use uh, for the show and um, which sometimes can have diagrams and stuff on them that are useful. And you can find our episodes without advertisements there. Um, If you want to find updates about the show, you can find them at facebook.com slash breaking math podcast or more commonly now our Twitter at breaking math pod. Our website is breaking math podcast dot app breaking math podcast dot app. And um, if uh, it's going to be, it's under construction uh, right now, but it's still usable. Um, and if you want to email us ideas, comments, questions, or corrections, you can email us at breakingmathpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, if you want to listen to uh, something quite like Breaking Math, uh, you could listen to our sister podcast, Turning Rabbit Holes. So Meryl, do you want to walk through the difference between classical and differential geometry? So what I would say is we're talking about with more classical geometry, think Euclid, lines, angles, certain polygons, 
and theorems involving those. Yeah, and uh, Euclid, uh, Euclid had like you know, in elements, everything is based on uh, a few um, axioms. It's a very heavily right the postulates. Yeah, it's a very heavy postul- uh, postulate slash axiom whatever based uh, system. Uh, but um, differential geometry, it doesn't really have axioms per se, right? Well, what we're really thinking of here is where more classical Euclid, you know, Euclidean geometry is to Euclid. In this case, we're working with differential geometry which I would say is more of Gauss's realm. And uh, Gauss is an interesting character. Uh, isn't he the one that um, added up the numbers from 1 to 100? Oh, yeah, that formula. Yeah, he um, he was uh, in like second grade and he was annoying his teacher. So she was <laughs> like, add up the numbers from 1 to 100. So he went, wrote 1 plus 2 plus all the way to 100. Um, and then uh, he wrote um, it backwards, and they noticed that all, all every entry added up to 101, and he just multiplied that by how many there were and divided by two and got the answer in a few minutes. So Gauss did work a lot with surfaces in three-dimensional space, particularly, you know, things like spheres or other curved surfaces, integrals or differentiation among them, and theorems relating to such. <laughs> All right, so what is uh, curvature, basically? I mean, we're, we, we could define it in terms of uh, osculating. They're called osculating circles. Um, and I think we have a good example for uh, describing kind of what that is. So the concept of describing curvature using osculating circles can be attributed to Cauchy. And pretty much what that is, is you have... So let's say you have a one-dimensional curve in two-dimensional space. So this could be like, for example, if you're driving in a, on a path, like um, on off-roading or on a road, right? If on a flat surface, um, or even a even a 3D surface, right? Yeah. So kind of like it's so like a parametric curve is what you're thinking there. Yeah, like you have a point and you have um, a location is in space over time. So going back to the concept of osculating circle, so pretty much what we're doing is, so at any point on this path, so draw a circle where exactly one point touches that point on the curve, and then just keep expanding the circle until, if you expand it any bigger, it would intersect at more than one point. And so that biggest possible circle you can fit into that part of the curve is called the osculating circle. And the curvature at that point can be described as the reciprocal of that circle's radius. Yeah, so, uh, and uh, to uh, clarify too, the circle has to be expanded uh, until it intersects local points, right? Because I was thinking if it, if it, um, if you have, Kind of a uh, imagine if you took a shoelace and you made us made a uh, like an, a, a a kind of a flat oval, but then uh, pulled it back through itself. The oscillating circle would intersect um, the sho- the sho- uh, more points on the shoelace than one, right? Right. So we are kind of thinking more on an infinitesimal level. So let's say that we have a short stretch of the plane that is a straight line. Then the radius of that oscillating circle would technically be infinity because you can just keep growing and growing and it would not ever intersect at that local neighborhood. Yeah, it's a kind of a weird thing that we've been coming back to in Breaking Math recently. It's uh, describing circles in terms of uh, 
lines. It's just kind of tangential to that. But so one example that I came up with uh, for describing um, curvature is uh, is talking about like if you're on a car uh, driving on like, let's say a salt flat, right? So if you drive in a circle, you will feel a pull, right? Right. The lateral G's. Yeah. The lateral G's towards the center of the circle. And if you notice that if I'm driving, if I'm driving, let's say like 30 miles an hour, if the circle is really big, like a mile wide, I'll barely feel any acceleration, right? But if it's like a really small circle, like uh, 10 feet wide, I'd probably like start to throw up if I'm going 30 miles an hour. Yeah. So you start doing donuts, you're really going to feel it. And that can kind of correspond to curvature is the more lateral G force you feel, the more curvature you would be getting. As you're talking about, like if you're moving along a curve, then you have some amount of acceleration towards the center of, and I guess that in this sense, we could call it the osculating circle. So let's say I'm driving along a weird path in a car, right? So like, let's say I'm tracing out, um, I don't know, a picture of a duck on the salt flat. If I want to know what the curvature is at a certain point on the duck, all I have to do is freeze my hand so that the wheel stays still and the car will go in a cir- in the oscillating circle. So there's just kind of another way to look at it. And then if you measured the acceleration in the car, uh, which can be done by uh, weighing something, all right, so now um, since we've done curvature, um, we're, the next part is going to get a little bit into linear algebra. Um, and so before we do that, let's talk about the uh, concepts really quick. All right, Meryl, what's a vector? So there's a number of ways this, to define a vector. Um, some people will talk, call it a rank one tensor or say it's a quantity that has magnitude or direction. But all we really need to know in this case is that it is for our intents and purposes a collection of real numbers. Yeah, and the number and these numbers, uh, um, we, we through some way there's many ways to do this, different types of coordinates and whatever. But these numbers describe uh, in some way magnitude, direction. All these things are relevant, uh, definitely. Yeah, a, ve- a vector will have like a, let's say we're let's say we're just in three D Euclidean space, right? It'll have um, uh, like usually it'll be um, the vector x and the vector y and the vector z, right, as the basis. Oh, you're talking about like you know orthogonal basis vectors. Okay. Like if we're measuring like space for real, we have to have like you know like a point of uh, reference and like you know what a unit is and all that. Um, something that I kind of glossed over because I said it was a collection of real numbers. Something that we I think I need to clarify on is that it is going to be like whatever dimension space is in is how many numbers are in that vector. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, if you're in four-dimensional space, no matter what system you use, you have to define it using four uh, real numbers. Four linearly independent real numbers. Yeah, that's right. Because if you have two uh, axes pointing in the same uh, direction, then basically, like, if you're in 3D space, you'll only be able to describe things on either a plane or a line, depending on how uh, linearly dependent the vectors are to each other, right? Uh, the basis vectors, or the the fake basis vectors that don't actually work as basis vectors. Yeah, so it just has to, they have to span the whole space, is all that means. Yeah, and I mean, some ba- basis vector type concepts that we use in daily life is like north and south. But also, uh, would you like to describe how, excel- how uh, velocity, for example, can be described by a vector? So velocity, and this is the high school physics definition, is that it's not just speed. Speed is just the magnitude of velocity. Velocity 
is the speed that something's going at and the direction that it's going. Yeah. So, um, so if I like, um, if somebody shoots an arrow, the velocity points along the direction that the arrow is flying, right? Right. And um, the acceleration can also be described by a vector. And the acceleration um, is like what you would feel if like you were in like a carnival ride, uh, like the, the, the way that your stomach is being pulled left and right um, can be described by acceleration. And the direction that you feel the pull um, is the vector in that situation. And the magnitude is how much you feel the pull. So I think that kind of describes vector as well. So um, next we're going to talk about uh, ma what matrices are and how they can be used to transform vectors. So let's say, so to, to describe what a matrix is, let's say I have a sphere made out of vectors, right? Like uh, basically vectors pointing in every single direction and they can be described by arrows that are of length one, right? Right. So there's a few things I could do to that sphere. I could stretch it so it turns into an oval, right? I can skew it. Um, I can uh, make it bigger and smaller. Uh, scaling is just stretching equally in all directions, right? So if you want to describe uh, the, all these things, uh, they're called linear uh, transformations. Uh, and, they're and they're called linear transformations for one of many reasons. One is that a line uh, multiplied by a matrix will just be another line, right? Right. So for pretty much every normal vector on the sphere that you have, when you're mapping it to something else, there's, you know, a constant scaling associated with it effectively for whichever direction you're pointing in. Yeah, it's, so you're talking about the direction of the stretching and stuff, right? Right. And, you know, that's why it's called linear is because that scaling is for any one direction. It's constant. It's not, you know, it's not squaring or cubing or, you know, something weird like sinusoidal or exponential. Yeah, and and also like uh, many uh, linear transformations can be uh, in, uh, reversed, inverted, so just transformed back. Um, the only times really where they count is when you uh, compress the amount of dimensions they have. Uh, you can't really get that information back, right? Right. So let's say you have a vector, right, and you stretch and you're stretching the sphere of vectors. If you look at where the original vector was, the place where th that point is stretched out to, the is uh, describes where the vector is when multiplied by that matrix. Um, any and then if you the vector is longer than that, you just multiply it by how long the vector is divided by one or whatever. Because remember, the sphere has a radius one. Exactly. And so also when you stretch this, uh, you'll notice that some uh, vectors might change uh, size, but there's always going to be like, like if it's like three-dimensional space, there's usually three. Um, four-dimensional space, there's usually four uh, vectors that um, don't change direction when they're scaled, right? And those are known as eigenvectors. Eigenvectors are a weird concept, but we use we're going to use them in talking about Gaussian curvature, uh, which is really kind of like a three-dimensional or n-dimensional, really, uh, description of how things are curved. And eigenvalue and eigenvectors and eigenvalues uh, relate to uh, what linear transformations are. Correct. Um, that's right, because eigenvectors are the vectors in your uh, domain of your linear transformation that do not in any way get distorted other than scaling by the um, by the linear transformation. And what do you mean by domain in this context? I just wanted to clarify yeah. for the listeners. So let's say that we are just in two-dimensional space on the plane, like we have a painting or something, and we're applying a linear transformation. So it's going to do some, you know, so it's going to do some stretching and some shearing to it, but there's going to be 
um, a particular direction, a particular vector along this painting that doesn't get sheared, just scaled. Yeah, and uh, by the way, shearing, uh, I, I'm not sure if I described that well earlier. Um, if you want to shear a stack of cards, all you have to do is like uh, kind of like put them at an angle, right? Right. So yeah, that's what shear, that's what shearing is. I think I called it skewing earlier by accident. But um, so the eigenvalues is related to the eigenvectors, right? Uh, yeah, because eigenvalues are just... So for those vectors that I described, that only scaling happens along them, uh, eigenvalues tell you how much scaling happens along those vectors. And what does an eigenvalue of zero mean? So if you have an eigenvalue of zero, that means you have a transformation um, that loses a dimension. So you're compressing, and so you have a linear dependence somewhere, probably. Yeah, so let's say we're working in three dimensions, right? And we have two eigenvalues that are zero. That it would mean that we're we reduce everything to something along a line, correct? Right. And uh, three eigenvalues being zero, I'm pretty sure that just means that you're working with the zero matrix, right? Yeah. Um, which is a matrix of all zeros. Oh, and also ma matrices uh, can be described um, as like a column, uh, like a rows and columns of uh, numbers. So like uh, uh, like transformation matrices that transform uh, from like three dimensions to three dimensions would be uh, three wide and three high, right? Exactly. But that's not totally important to what we're uh, talking about today, except um, it, it, all you have to know is that uh, I mean, if you want to look at uh, uh, matrix multiplication, uh, you could do it um, on uh, Wikipedia has a pretty good article. I mean, essentially, it's just you take the um, rows, uh, you take the rows of uh, the matrix and multiply it by the um, vector. You multiply it component wise by the vector and add them all up. Uh, and then you put all those uh, in a row, and that's uh, the product, right? Uh, that sounds about right. So let's talk about real quick what the gradient is. The gradient is sort of a way to take the derivative of a vector, right? So the gradient itself is a vector of partial derivatives, effectively. And so for any... So let's say that we have a scalar function that takes in um, a vector, then... What we're doing is we're taking the partial derivative with every vector component, and out of that, we're getting a vector of each of those partial derivatives. And that S actually tells us... Um, so let's say that we're um, in two dimensions, just like on a plane. So our scalar function on this plane is going to look like a surface, right? Sort of like a, um, a wrinkled up bedsheet, let's say. Yeah, or uh, like, or you could even say, um, like, uh, so it would be describe the height, right? So you could almost say that you could even describe it as a topological map, right? Or topographic. Topographic map, sorry. Yeah, like one of those mountain maps. Yeah. So what I'm kind of getting at here is that, so the gradient vector, for one thing, it tells us what, for at any point, the direction of of the steepest ascent is, but it also gives us a uh, vector that is tangent to our surface. And so tangent to our surface means that, so if you draw a line in the direction of this vector, it's going to touch locally at exactly one point, and it's going to show us what the slope is at that point. And which, and, uh, which direction is the gradient pointing? Like, uh, because obviously the slope, uh, the gradient could be any there's a whole there's a whole circle right uh, of um, vectors that could be tangent to a certain point right. So which one does the gradient describe? 
Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. You already said <laughs> point of Steve's ascent. So, yeah, so yeah, so if you have a, ma- a topological map, the topographic, a topographic map uh, is probably not the best way to go about it. But if you want to climb a mountain as steep as possible, just take the gradient and then follow it up to the highest point. I bring the gradient up because it's motivation for the tangent vectors on other surfaces, not just these scalar function surfaces, but say like parametric surfaces in three dimensions, three dimensional space, those will have tangent vectors on them as well. So uh, ten, something that's tangent to like a 2D line, uh, that would be something that points along the line, correct? Uh, yeah. And so we have a one dimensional way of describing this is that a line is tangent to a curve if so it'll just touch at that one point and it'll share the slope at that point but not necessarily anywhere else and so when we're going to surfaces so we have something similar we have tangent vectors so tangent vectors are on a plane that touches a surface it's tangent to the surface and it can be any vector on that plane so let's say that we're talking about a human head, right? And you have a book and somebody's rubbing a book on their head. Uh, the plane that represents the surface of the book would be tangent to each spot that the, touches that person's head, correct? Right. So let's say you have a book on someone's head. And so if you were to draw an arrow from the point that the book touches your head just to anywhere on the book, that's a tangent vector. Yeah. And, uh, and all these tangent vectors together describe uh, something called the tangent space, correct? Right. And so what the tangent space really is, is so for every point on a surface, we have a copy of the plane or n-dimensional space um, that the surface is for that point. So let's say for a sphere, for instance, we just pick any point on it. And so we put a plane tangent to that point. And then so any vector that exists on that plane is part of the tangent space for that point. Yeah, so so you're saying so basically, to sum that up, you're saying that every every point has a different uh, tangent space. So is, is so you could you could you could imagine it as like every every point on the head has a different orientation of the book, um, and uh, it, the and the points that that yeah, like you said, that go that radiate away on the book from the point that it touches that person's head uh, would represent the tangent space. Uh, yeah, and just a reminder that so the vectors in this tangent space, they can have any magnitude and, di- and direction. They just have to be on that plane. All right, so now let's say somebody uh, uses a pin to pin that book to that person's head. That pin would be normal to the person's head, correct? Right, and so let's say you have any two um, tangent vectors um, at a point. So any two vectors that are not the same vector and are not linearly dependent. So let's take a vector that is perpendicular to them that would be pointing outward of the surface. It would be perpendicular to the surface, effectively. Yeah, and the linearly dependent would mean... In this case, it would mean that they're either pointing in the same direction or the opposite direction. So we just don't want that. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, that, that's what the normal of a surface is. It just, uh, like, uh, who's that? Who's that? Um, who's that? Horror movie character with all the um, nails in his head. Hellraiser, apparently. Yeah, so the Hellraiser guy has a bunch of nails tangent, uh, I mean, normal to the surface of their skin, right? Exactly. <laughs> so let's say we want to describe some like uh, so, some weird surface in three dimensions, right? Like uh, uh, we could do something called parametrization. Um, and parametrization in one dimension could be like a point where it is in time, right? But parametrization in two dimensions is like, let's say that we're doing the surface of uh, like somebody's head, right? Again, you could you could define it in two dimensions, in two ways. You could say you could say that the very top of their head is uh, to the very bottom of their chin is like an axis, and you could say that um, the angle uh, that that um, like so if they're wearing a fez, for example, that hat with the tassel, the place the tassel. Um, would go on their head. So the yeah. angle that you have to rotate that tassel to to get to the point uh, can be one uh, one um, parametric uh, variable like u, for example, or theta or something like that. And then v could be, or h or whatever could be the height where it is on your head. So your eye would be about like, you know, like five inches down from or four inches down from the top of your head. And it would be uh, relatively close to zero rotation, a little positive or a little negative, depending on which eye you are at. So that's a way to parametrize the head. Okay. And I just want to interject and say, we really seem to be talking a lot about heads today. Yeah, I don't know if it's... Uh, I'll it's ask all in your head. You listen to Breaking Math, which probably means you're a big nerd. And you're in good company. We're all big nerds here at Breaking Math, and I want to talk to you about Brilliant. Brilliant is a one-stop shop for math and science. They have everything from lectures on number theory to mind-expanding puzzles and exercises. And how do you learn this, you might ask? Through both presented information and problems to solve. After all, you learn best by actively using your knowledge. This week, we want to feature a wonderful course on machine learning. It is one of many courses in data science available on Brilliant. So what are you waiting for? Sign up at brilliant.org slash breaking math. The first 250 listeners get 20% off the annual subscription. That's at... That's brilliant.org slash breaking math. Hey, breaking math fans. First, I want to thank you for listening. I have an important message for everyone. You can start your own podcast right now with Anchor. Anchor lets you create and distribute your own podcast. Just get an idea, record, and upload. It's just that easy. Anyone can do it. I'm on my way to accomplishing my dream, and you can too. Just get on your device's app store and download Anchor. It contains everything you need to make a podcast. With Anchor, you can put your podcast on all the big platforms. Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Amazon, and more. Reach the whole world with Anchor. Best of all, Anchor is free. You have nothing to lose with a free platform. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, so with a lot of big definitions out of the way... Now we can finally get to the main um, course of this episode, and that is Gaussian curvature. And so what that is, is so there's a handful of ways to define it. 
Um, I will start with the one that says that it's the product of principal curvatures at um, some point on a surface. So what is a principal? uh, So what what would be uh, the principal curvature, for example, on uh, like a like a, a paper towel roll? So a paper towel roll would be a cylinder. So we have, so let's say curving inwards is defined as positive, outwards as negative, just for simplicity's sake. So the circular part, so the part that's going around could be considered um, one direction that we're going in, and that would have a positive curvature. The other that we would have was, so along the cylinder going back and forth, and so that would be in a straight line, and we call that zero curvature. And zero times anything is just zero. And that uh, and that checks out because if you remember uh, from when we've we've talked about curvature before, the like like okay, let's say you have a mylar balloon, right? You blow it up, but not, not, the balloon doesn't stretch. So um, uh, so but but the curvature of the mylar balloon, so the curvature of the my, mylar balloon doesn't change no matter how it's crumpled up or deflated. In the same way, the curvature of a piece of paper doesn't change if it's uh, uh, de- if it's uh, crumpled up. And or like shaped into whatever. Uh, so since you could take a piece of paper and wrap it around a cylinder, it has no curvature. Uh, exactly. Because so if you have an axis, so if you have an axis of principal curvature that is zero, that means it's going in a straight line. And that's just what we call zero curvature is a straight line, just like in our original definition of curvature for just a path in a 2D plane. Yeah, and you might be wondering at this stage, like let's say you draw an X on the uh, on the paper towel roll, it would seem like you have two curvatures multiplying by together with the same uh, sign, right? Um, it, which would mean positive curvature. So one way you can find the Gaussian curvature uses uh, what's called a shape operator, right? Uh, yeah, so the shape operator is going to give us our principal curvatures by... Um, using eigenvalues and eigenvectors like we talked about. And so what we're taking eigenvalues and eigenvectors of is called the shape operator. Yeah, and the shape operator operates on the normal, uh, the, the normals right to the surface. So, um, and the way that it operates on, the way that it operates on them is you take the Jacobian. Um, do you want to describe quickly what the Jacobian is? So the Jacobian is pretty much a, vector calculus um, way of thinking about derivatives is that so if you have a function from three-dimensional space to three-dimensional space so you're taking partial derivatives of each component of our function yeah it's like a vector uh, remember matrices are like rows of vectors that you each multiply by the vector that you're uh, doing to get the, the to get each component right of the new thing so the shape so the Jacobian uh, takes the gradient um, or the you know the method of steepest descent or uh, basically of each component of the of the transformation of the function from uh, that we're describing from like three dimensions to three dimensions or seven to seven or whatever. Yeah, and so what'll happen then is that so each row of a matrix will be one of the gradient vectors for that particular component. Yeah, and what happens if you take the normal of uh, if if you take the shape operator of the normal at a certain point, like so, let's say we're doing a a, a cylinder, we actually get um, 
a, a Jacobian a, a Jacobian that has a row of zero, and the and that and that means that the determinant of the Jacobian. Uh, well, well, let's say let's talk about what that means. It means that uh, that if we have a sphere right at uh, that's on the surface that's like touching the sur like a bead on the surface of a cylinder, and we multiply it by the Jacobian of the normal at that point, which is the shape operator, right? Um, we're gonna get a flat disk on the uh, on the surface of the um, cylinder. And that flat disk has volume zero, which actually corresponds to zero curvature. Basically, your transformations don't change in the up and down direction or the left and right direction. And then forward to back, you don't actually do anything. Yeah. So let's actually get to our definition of Gaussian curvature at, in terms of product of principal curvatures. So each principal curvature is an eigenvalue of the shape operator. Yeah. And, so, and in the cylinder, you get it that the eigenvalues are one and zero. Versus, uh, if you do a sphere, for example, I mean, in the example that we did, uh, you get the curvature being one over r, because uh, uh, it's the determinant of the, that Jacobian. Right, and so that's the other def definition we can use for Gaussian curvature is, so we get product of those eigenvalues or principal curvatures, or we get the determinant of the shape operator. They come out to the same thing. And remember, the determinant is like the new volume that this, like, you, you remember we were talking earlier about transforming the sphere of vectors, uh, the mm -hmm. one sphere of vectors. If you, if you transform that and you get like a certain different volume, that volume divided by the original volume is uh, the determinant. That's how it could be uh, seen. It's the change in volume. Yeah. So, yeah. So if you have a sphere, for example, so if you have a sphere, the shape operator uh, points into the sphere and then up and down and, uh, the and the one that points into the sphere um, has, is uh, 1 over r, I believe, uh, in magnitude. Right, and because the radius of the sphere is going to be positive, that's going to be positive too. And yeah, so that's how you uh, get um, the principal uh, curvatures. And yeah, like you said, you multiply them together and you get the Gaussian curvature. How would you apply this to a saddle, for example? So if you just hold it in front of you, then you'll see that going one way, um, side to side, for instance, so it would be curving up, but from front to back, you'd see that it kind of has, that instead it curves down. Kind of like a uh, Pringle. Right. So that means, and it doesn't really matter which one you define as negative or positive, because one will be negative and the other will be positive, and you'll multiply those together and get a surface with negative curvature. Now... Why is this, uh, the curvature of a torus different on the outside and the inside? Okay, so let's say that you pick a point on the outside of a torus. A donut shape. Yeah, so it's going to curve in the same direction. So it's going to curve the same way. It's going to curve, we'll call it inward, for both if you go around it horizontally or around it vertically. Yeah, so I mean, like the way you could see that is like on the point on the outside. Like, if you hold your donut, uh, you could hold it uh, so that you're holding it um, by the by the side of the donut, and your fingers will curve like that. If you rotate your hand, your fingers don't have to curve backwards unnaturally to hold the donut sideways. Right. So let's think about the inside of the donut, though. So on your vertical axis again, so it's still curving the same way, but on the horizontal axis, it isn't. It's I guess if we call the vertical curving inward, then we would have to call the horizontal curving outward. 
Yeah, and if you look, if you think about it, if you had a really big donut, you could kind of nestle some uh, Pringles in there, right? I guess you could. But on the outside, they would stick out all weird. That makes sense. Although I'm not sure Pringles and donuts together are that good a combination. Oh, they're not. Math is full of terrible combinations. <laughs> and so, uh, what, so what can we do? What can we do with uh, the concept of curvature? Like, what kind of, what can we apply this to? So one thing that we can do is we can find out what kind of geometry a surface has. We can find out um, what version of, say, Euclid's parallel postulate that a surface follows. So there's a really elegant version of the parallel postulate that we could use for this. So say we have a line L and a point P that is not on line L. Then, so what we're used to is... Euclidean geometry, so the regular Euclid's parallel postulate that says that we have exactly one line M that P is on that does not intersect with L. So we have one parallel line to L for any point. Yeah, and if I rotate that line at all, right, like if I change what line it is, it's going to touch at some point, right? Exactly. Now, let's say we're on a sphere. Uh, what? How does this postulate change? So... We can think of the um, so we can think of the lines per se on a sphere as the great circles of the sphere. So all of the circumferences. Yeah, the great circle is the biggest circle that could fit around the sphere, right? Yeah. So that's the thing is that if you have one of these and you have a point not on it, you try to draw the biggest circle around, and you're going to intersect at that point. So for spherical or elliptic geometry, there are no parallel lines. This is called the rubber band ball principle. Just kidding, it's not, but it should be. And then finally we get, honestly, the best part of geometry, if you ask me, is hyperbolic geometry. So hyperbolic geometry tells us that if there is a point P, not on line L, then there are infinitely many lines not intersecting L that go through P. Now, are there um, lines, but there are lines that do intersect L, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just that there's infinitely many that don't. So how does this relate to the curvature of a surface? Well, something that we know about these different geometries is, so how many degrees does a triangle add up to in Euclidean geometry? Um, half of circle. Right. So 180. Yeah. So we can think of what curvature is doing, whether it's negative or positive, is giving us a deviation from 180 because a consequence of these parallel postulates of elliptic and hyperbolic geometry is that the angles of a triangle in, say, elliptic geometry will always add up to more than 180 degrees. So an example of this is if I go to the if I go to um, like the equator like Panama and I and I uh, and I walk uh, or I hovercraft all the way up to the North Pole and then I hovercraft down to I don't know probably somewhere in Africa like Equatorial Guinea yeah Equatorial it has Guinea. Equatorial in the name yeah and then go back to the place near um, uh, Nicaragua or whatever we were I guess uh, it would be Ecuador oh yeah yeah again oh, yeah. yeah equator name places yeah I I forgot about that. But uh, yeah, so you can basically turn right uh, three times, which is 270 degrees. 
Yeah. Or nearabouts there. And so what's cool about this is positive curvature, positive deviation from 180 degrees. And negative curvature, negative deviation. Yeah. So, in fact, in some extreme cases of hyperbolic geometry, you can actually get a triangle where all three angles, and this is called an asymptotic triangle, all three angles are zero degrees, and you have a zero degree triangle. So I mentioned the zero degree triangle, but usually what we get is just a saddle surface, and so that's going to have some negative curvature, not necessarily enough for us to have that asymptotic triangle, but if you try to draw lines, so geodesics along, which are the lines of shortest distance um, along the surface, then you can use them to get a triangle with angles that add up to less than 180 degrees. So now the, well, the other one was the main course, right? So this is what the dessert. So this is what I was really looking forward to mentioning on this episode is Gauss's Theorema Egregium. And so that's just Latin for remarkable theorem. So let's say that we just take any surface, say a piece of paper, and so we bend it however we want. We don't stretch it at all. We just bend it. We make sure that all of the metrics on it stay the same effectively. Then the curvature on it doesn't change. Even though it's locally curved, right? You're saying that the intrinsic uh, curvature doesn't change because like if you wrapped it around something, you could say that, you know, there, if you follow a path along that line, it would be curved, but the intrinsic curvature, therefore it'd be, it's such a remarkable thing, you know, because it, it, it could be measured no matter how it's embedded. I mean, you could also think of this as like a deflating balloon or deflating uh, anything like that. Uh, like what, specifically a balloon that doesn't stretch, like a mylar balloon or like uh, a uh, balloon uh, for like a, a uh, what, what do you call those balloons that people ride in? Just a hot air balloon. Uh, I should know you this. Should know. I'm from Albuquerque. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I lose 10 Albuquerque points, 10 green chilies. But yeah, when this deflates, um, the curvature does not uh, change just because it's deflated. Because if you think about it, like if I have a globe I, or an orange peel, I can't really flatten an orange peel onto a table without basically cracking it everywhere, right? Yeah, and... So let's think about that for a second. So an orange is a sphere, yeah? Usually. Just going to guess. Um, spheroid. Well, topologically, it's a sphere. But that means, and we've mentioned before, spheres have positive curvature. And they're not very stretchy. At least I hope they aren't. What, oranges? The, the, the peel on them shouldn't be. Oh, yeah, no. You're, you're, yeah, that sounds like some Black Mirror oranges. Yeah. So, yeah, if you peel it and and you're good enough at peeling an orange to keep it in one contiguous piece. And if you try to flatten it out onto a table, it won't really flatten all the way, like you said, without cracking some. And that's because, so if you could flatten it, it would have zero curvature, right? Yes. But if an orange is spherical, it has positive curvature. So you can't, without stretching it, turn it from positive curvature to zero curvature. Yeah, and in the same way, if you tried to uh, squish a saddle onto the ground, it would be like you, you would have to kind of like push it together almost. It would, like it would bunch up like the surface of a saddle, right? Yeah, so a saddle isn't going to get flattened on the ground either without, yeah. you know, probably without seriously damaging it. All right, so we move on from oranges to pizza. Yeah, so this is the fun thing about 
So the Theorema Egregium can be used as a strategy for eating pizza because don't you just hate it when it's like you're trying to eat pizza, but it's like you don't want to use both hands necessarily to hold it up. Um, but if you hold it with just one hand, then it might droop down. If let's, That's like if you're holding the crust, right? Yeah. So let's think about what pizza is. So it's just a disc, a flat disc. So pizza has zero curvature, right? So, but pizza can bend, right? Either, so let's say we have a slice. So we take a slice, still has zero curvature, and then we lift it up just by the crust. Then, so it's going to droop down, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's gravity doing its work. And so what's happening is it's bending, but not stretching. Yeah, At pizza least, isn't stretchy. I would hope it not. If it, I, I would hope not. Otherwise, put it back in the oven. Yeah, but anyway. So what happens then if? So let's say that we hold the pizza such that we're bending the crust. Kind of like a New Yorker. Yeah. So just fold the pizza in half, kind of like into a calzone shape. Then, so it'll be curved along that axis. So from the crust to the point of the slice. So what's that going to look like then? Uh, th- th- that's going to, it's going to just be a straight line, right? Yeah. So the pizza will actually hold up. It won't droop down. Yeah. And the reason why it can't droop down is because if it could, it would uh, be a negative curvature. Right. And it would require some sort of stretching of the pizza, which again, put it back in the oven. And stretching in terms of material science means that you're um, a- actively deforming or like... um. Like you're cha- you're messing with the bonds between things, right? Just change the axis that the curvature is on, and because it's zero, it'll make it easier to eat your pizza. So just eat your pizza like a New Yorker. From Euclid to Gauss, circles to saddles, and pizza to parametrization, we have explored the concept of curvature as it relates to complex surfaces. This concept of curvature was essential for developments in physics, such as general relativity and is an essential component of a differential geometry arsenal. I'm Sophia. And I'm Meryl. And this has been Breaking Math. Uh, it's been a kind of cool episode. Um, it One thing that actually kind of directly relates to this episode is the poster we keep plugging, $19.65, facebook.com slash breakingmathpodcast. Click on shop. All right. Till next time. Actually, I don't even know. Robespierre <laughs> was a complex person, but this is a math podcast. And he was terrible.